As we look through your word this morning, I pray that you'd give us insight that we'd be able to hear your voice, just to each one of us, to hear those things you want to speak to us and then to do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been asleep for the last 12 hours or so, you may not know Kay lost last night. <laughs> Kay lost. And I was thinking this is Easter Sunday. Wouldn't it be cool if you brought the, this morning's newspaper in and somehow it turned out that they really won and they were playing tomorrow night? Somehow an Easter miracle for KU. <laughs> but it's not, not going to happen, I'm afraid. I had really hoped they would win just for Roy's uh, sake, just so that the monkey would be off his back for the future. But I've also been encouraged. Did you hear the Indiana coach when he was interviewed? Really, you hear people honor God sometimes, sports people, and sometimes not do it very well. But this guy was so well-spoken and just in such an appropriate way honored God. uh, It was cool, very cool. So may Indiana win now. God's guy for Indiana. We are in Daniel 6 today, surprise. With this passage, we're going to close out the first half of the book of Daniel. We're going to close out the sections with all the well-known stories. We've kind of thought about resurrection in our opening. We'll get back to Easter subjects here in a little bit, but we're going to work our way through Daniel 6 first. If you remember in the opening chapters of this, opening verses of this chapter, we took two weeks to work through, uh, envious leaders have conspired together to get rid of faithful Daniel. He's a leader again, a key administrator for the new king, Darius, of the Medo-Persian Empire. He does such a good job, he's going to be elevated to president, if you will, or chancellor under the king. And so they, they're envious, they're jealous, and they conspire to get rid of him. And they conspire. With the king's consent, he signs a document that if anyone prays to a god other than the king, they'll be thrown into a den of lions. Daniel hears about the new edict. He knows what the cost and the potential is. And what does he do, Zach? He goes right back up and prays again, doesn't he? Yep, he's faithful again, as we've talked about. So we're going to pick up this morning at Daniel chapter 6, verse 11. Then these men, these conspirators, came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. We talked about his prayer life last time as we looked at verse 10 especially. They approached and they spoke before the king about the king's injunction. And remember, this is a conspiracy on their part. The king's in the dark. He doesn't know why this has happened. He doesn't know what's coming. So you can imagine they probably nonchalantly walk in. This is kind of like, by the way, king, just, it just struck us. Didn't you sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? Just wondering, king. King replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be revoked. Well, yeah, I did, matter of fact. They answered and spoke before the king, well, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. He's disrespecting you, king, or to the injunction which you signed, but he keeps making his petitions three times a day. The trap has sprung here, isn't it? The trap was set in these opening verses up through verse 10, and it's sprung now. They've come into the king. They've told him that the injunction he signed, he can't deny it. 
has been violated by his trusted servant, Daniel. I suspect it was hard for these guys to contain their glee as they spring this trap in the king to the unknowing, ignorant king here. Verse 14, As soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. Even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. This is telling, isn't it? King Darius, this probably hasn't been a very long time that he's been uh, ruling and that Daniel's been serving him, but he already has, Daniel has his full trust, affection, confidence, respect, probably love and admiration in some notable sense. For a king to care so that he was deeply distressed about losing Daniel, this was a big thing. I think you might remember there's a lot of comparisons between this and chapter 3 with the fiery furnace. Do you remember when the guys disobey in chapter 3 what the king's response is? He was angry, but then he, he just incensed in anger. <clears throat> Here, the king's contrast is, or, or uh, his, his uh, response to this is deep distress. He's going to lose this guy that he respects and values and probably loves. So deeply distressed, and he set his mind on delivering Daniel. So maybe he heard about this in the morning. It says, until sunset, until the end of the day, he's exerting himself. He's probably got his lawyers and attorneys searching the library, looking for some way to get around this law. He's not physically exerting himself. He's distressed, and he's wondering, what can I do so Daniel doesn't have to be cast into the lion's den? So all day, he's trying to figure out a way to get Daniel released, to save Daniel, and to spare him. At the end of the day, the conspirators come back in by agreement, verse 15, to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. These guys are on really perilous ground. They have constrained the more powerful king by their manipulations, and now they come in and force the issue. And they're going to get their way, but you know when you manipulate someone more powerful than you, and then they find out you've manipulated them, you know, what do you figure the response is going to be down the road? It's destruction, isn't it? It's not going to be what you want. And I think one of the greatest applications I can think of, Tanisha, you'd never, you'd never guess what my application here is, kids. If you maliciously try and get your siblings in trouble, do you know how your parents feel about that? They're not happy, are they? But this can happen at any age. When you manipulate someone with greater authority or power so that they're doing your bidding and they find out, they will not be happy, and you can bet the repercussions are going to be severe and untasteful, something that you wouldn't want. But they come in and they force the issue. King, you know. You must carry this through. You signed the law. You know that there's no wiggle room, and you must follow through, whether you want to or not. They're going to get their way. Verse 16, then the king gave orders. The king did what the king had to do. He is constrained by the law. He may not do otherwise. Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. So the sentence is carried out. The king must obey the law. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. 
The language here is a little unclear. This says, uh, uh, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. It might mean just that. It might mean your God must deliver you because no one else can. Or it may be itself a kind of prayer. May your God whom you serve deliver you. But one way or another, it means that you have no other hope of deliverance unless your God comes through. You remember again in the fiery furnace, so many, so many uh, similarities here. The men there say, our God can deliver us. We don't know if he will or not, but we know he can. King Darius is kind of saying the same thing. Your only hope is if your God delivers you. Thrown into the den of lions, a stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of the nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Remember, once the king puts a stamp on that, if you violated that seal, you violated the king and and your life was forfeit. So the stone is rolled over. It's sealed with the king's authority. This is, again, what had to be done. He was constrained by the law that he himself had signed. So Daniel's fate is sealed. He's in the pit. The stone's over it. It's sealed. God alone can save or deliver him. It is interesting that King Darius says, as king, that Daniel, your only hope is in your God. He doesn't just write off Daniel's God. We don't know. We've got a a great conclusion, his last words here in the end of the chapter. But where is he at personally? Not real sure, but he has some confidence that Daniel's God really is a God, and maybe Daniel's God can come in and bring deliverance. Verse 18, then the king went off to his palace, the sentence has been carried out, spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him. Sleep fled from him. He's miserable. And maybe you in times of just really great anxiety or worry or sadness have spent a night where you can't sleep, you're restless. Something is so involved in your thinking or your mind, you just can't rest. And this is what his night was like. He's anxious about his friend, Daniel. Fasting, no entertainment. You know, this guy had the world and all its its pleasures available to him. Probably it was normal for him to have some kind of luscious dinner, some kind of music or entertainment, something. But he doesn't spend his time in any of those things that night. Sleep fled from him. So all night he tosses and turns. He's anxious. Verse 19, Then the king rose at dawn, at the break of day, as soon as he could, and went in haste to the lion's den. And when he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? You know, put yourself in the king's shoes. You've tossed and turned all night. You've run to the lion's den where you had to have your friend thrown in. And you, you utter this question. Now, as soon as you finish speaking, how much silence is there? You know, every second would seem like an eternity because silence means he's not delivered. So even if it's a few moments, by the time he finished speaking and he's waiting, you know, you can imagine, I don't know how much a pause there was, but until he hears something, he knows Daniel's not okay. It's a long, pregnant pause, and then he hears, Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. Can you imagine him? Sitting there above the den, and he hears Daniel's voice, God has delivered him. 
king live forever. If you remember, the conspirators said this when they came to the king the first time. It was a sham. It was hypocrisy. Daniel says it and really means it. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found innocent before him. I was found innocent before my God. So my God sent his angels. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. This might be a mild indictment on the king himself. The king had signed an injunction saying, you may not pray to anyone but me. And Daniel says, I've committed no crime against you, king. This was a law that should never have been signed, obviously. No one can take God's place. No one can constrain me, who knows the living and true God, to worship someone else other than him. But Daniel says, my God did deliver me. He sent the angel. They've closed the lion's mouths because I was innocent and because I sinned against not only not against God, but not against you. The king was very pleased. He's gone from, uh, how did it phrase that before? Very deeply distressed to very pleased. He loves this guy and he's been delivered. He gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is just like chapter 3. Do you remember it says they come out of the furnace and it says there's not even the smell of smoke on them. Same thing here. Same thing in chapter 3. Why were they delivered? Because they trusted in God. They trusted him. They knew who he was. And they entrusted their future and their life to him. And that's why he saved them. And that's why Daniel here says he was saved because he trusted in God. It's a great reminder for us. We're saved today from sin and its penalty simply by trusting in God, by faith. It's a gift. All we do to get it is trust, just like Daniel did here. Well, shwoo, that's over. Daniel's saved. Life is good again. Or is it? Verse 24, the king then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. The king loves Daniel and he knows these guys have manipulated him to kill the man he loved, respected, and appreciated. So those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were cast with their children and their wives into the lion's den. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This is gruesome, gruesome indeed. Not only were the men who sought Daniel's destruction themselves destroyed, but all their families were destroyed as well. This was not uncommon in the ancient world. This seems just atrocious to us. I think at some level it is. But you remember even in Joshua, as the Jews entered the promised land, Achan, who broke God's ban, stole something, cost the lives of many Jews when they went out to battle again, Achan with his family was destroyed. Deuteronomy 19 says part of the requirement of the law was that if someone lied or conspired to get some other party hurt, that whatever they had plotted against that other person was to be carried out on them. And that's exactly what has happened here. Out of envy and greed, they had plotted Daniel's destruction by lions. This might have been the worst thing they could think of. I don't know. But their conspiracy against him ended in their own destruction by the same means that they had hoped to get rid of Daniel. So the men who used treachery were themselves condemned in the end. Verse 25, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land 
just like Nebuchadnezzar had at the end of chapter 3. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He, Daniel's God, he is the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever and ever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This is cool. Uh, I'm a mild archaeology buff, and a lot of times it's amazing how many unbelievers there are who dig up biblical stuff, and they've dug up so much good stuff. But one of these days, I'd like to see them find one of these messages, messages from either Darius or Nebuchadnezzar. Wouldn't that be cool? That Daniel's God has saved him, delivered him from the line, and he is the God to worship and serve, and his kingdom will last forever. And then the end of the chapter, verse 28, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember, Cyrus the Persian is the high king that Darius was probably serving at this point. But the inference is Daniel's not only delivered, and remember, again, this is an old guy, but he continues to live on still, and probably at least for a couple years we know from chapters 10 and 12. So, again, he's delivered and continues in success. Now, remember, we've mentioned this earlier, but it, uh, it bears repeating now that this book and this story, chapter 6, like the other stories, was supposed to be an encouragement and a reminder to the Jews that even when they're oppressed and under the heel of Gentile powers, in the end, the Jewish people would, with their Messiah become part of God's eternal kingdom, which would never end. That that was their glorious hope. Do you remember talking about this a little bit? Listen to chapter 2, verse 44. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream about the statue, and it represented the Gentile kingdoms. And you remember what happens at the end? A stone cut out without human hands, a divine stone, crushes the statue, pounds it, pulverizes it into dust. And then this stone itself becomes this mountain in the earth. And it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. No Gentiles. The Jews are going to inherit this kingdom. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but will itself endure forever. And verse 27 in chapter 7, The sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. This story is a reminder that in the end, even out of oppression, sentenced to death, overwhelmed, overpowered, etc., that the Jews would survive and would enter the promised kingdom led by their Messiah. This has not happened, by the way. And on one hand, when you read the newspapers and see about all the trouble in Israel, I'm just sick on one hand, but I'm reminded on the other, God said these things would happen. Jerusalem would be a weight around the nation's neck. And until Jesus the Messiah returns and delivers the Jews and brings in his everlasting kingdom, this is going to be what we have. There is no peace on earth until the Prince of Peace reigns. But this... This story, Daniel 6, like the whole book, is supposed to remind the Jews and secondarily remind us 
that God will preserve those who belong to him and that they will be brought in with their Messiah and will rule and reign with him forever. So this is good stuff. And we could live on this alone. I'm, I'm thrilled Daniel's delivered. I'm thrilled the guys were delivered from the furnace. I'm thrilled that the stone comes and cracks up all these Gentile kingdoms and fills the earth and, and we know where we're going and all this and it is all great. But because this is Easter Sunday, let's rehearse this story again. Let's just look, take a little different perspective and just listen to some of the key components of this story and see if any of this rings true for you on Easter Sunday. <clears throat> Chapter 6, key elements of this story. A faithful servant is accused by envious leaders. The law is used as leverage to condemn this one who is without guilt. The sentence against him is carried out. The underground den is covered with a stone and sealed. Early in the morning, the den is checked by one who loves the condemned one. The innocent one is found alive. And seven, the conspirators are themselves judged. Does this sound familiar? Accused by envious leaders, the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Pilate knew that because of envy, they handed him over. The law was used to condemn him He forbids us to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ. We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die. Sentenced to death, Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. They came to the place called the skull, and they crucified him. Underground in a sealed tomb, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, Hewn out, rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, went away, the Jews said. Pilate, he might be stolen away. So Pilate says, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know. They went along with the guard and set a seal on the stone. After the Sabbath began to dawn toward the first day of the week, early in the morning, as early as they could, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They entered. They didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Two men suddenly stood near. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And last, Jesus turned to them and said, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore. And Jerusalem is destroyed, and most of these Jews are destroyed at 70 A.D. And in the future, as far as the world that condemned the innocent one, Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So on Easter Sunday, it's good to remember that Daniel is another picture of Jesus himself. And just like Isaac in Genesis led up this hill, carrying the wood on his back, laid on the altar to be offered up, he's another picture of Jesus himself. There is a key difference, isn't there, though? You remember Isaac, when Abraham's ready to slay him, God says, don't do it. 
And there's a substitute. And the ram caught in the thicket is brought in and offered in Isaac's place. And here, Daniel really doesn't die. He's put in a tomb. And the stone's rolled over it, but he doesn't die. And that's the difference, isn't it? Because Jesus was the substitute, he has no substitute. And the lions of death, the jaws of death, really do close around Jesus on the cross. He really does die. And all the other pictures and types in the Bible that were just a shadow of him, they all point to him because in the end, he was the reality. He, the sinless one, no sin before God, no sin before man, he's the one that as our sinless lamb, the Passover lamb, he's the one that really does die. Like the Passover lamb, his blood really is shed. He's the one that really does die so that others can be saved. And the deliverance Daniel enjoyed, and the deliverance Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego enjoyed, and Isaac enjoyed, was all in the end based on Jesus not enjoying deliverance, but going to the cross, really dying, really being buried, and then gloriously, really rising from the dead. Daniel and all the rest of the Bible, it points to Jesus. If we read our scriptures and we don't see Jesus in the end, we're missing something. He's the Father's delight. He's what all the scripture is about. He is the beginning and the end of all of God's revelation. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that not only those promises made to the Jews in Daniel that they'll be fulfilled, but every promise you or I can count on today out of the Old Testament or the New It's guaranteed because of Jesus' resurrection. You and I have no hope apart from the resurrection. Christmas is a great thing and we celebrate his birth, but without Jesus' death and resurrection, there's no hope, there's no salvation, there's no deliverance for you or I. But his resurrection is the guarantee that all of God's promises to you and I now in this life, to you and I and to God's people from the Old Testament and the New and and for the days yet to come, that they'll all be delivered in Christ into his eternal kingdom. It's a great, great thing. It's kind of the icing on the cake to those great stories out of the book of Daniel. And something, as we just wind this up and think of application, have you trusted in Jesus to save you from the law and its curse of death? Have you trusted in Jesus to save you from sin and death? He is your only hope. As Daniel was delivered because he trusted in God, that's your hope, that's my hope. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus did in our simply entrusting ourselves into his care. Are you facing life, am I facing life, and it's impossible challenges, confident because of Jesus' resurrection? No matter how bad life gets, you and I are on the earth for a brief period. And then there's eternity. So we should be able to face, we can face every day and the difficulties we face, big or small, with confidence because of Jesus' resurrection. It's the guarantee of our future. Or do you look on the future with joy knowing that your future isn't just safe? <clears throat> it's grand and glorious. I mean, who can, who can imagine what's to come? We know it'll be good. We've got a little glimpse of it. But, you know, the scripture, it kind of opens the door on eternity. It just tells us the beginning. We have no concept about what the new heavens and new earth will be like. What will it look like to live and rule and reign with Jesus through eternity? We don't know. 
It's going to be grand, though, and glory. It's going to be bigger and better than your imagination or mine. So we can live life now with that hope, that hope of a future. And when you face trials and accusations and difficulties, do you face them with hope because of the resurrection, because of your future and Christ's guarantee to you about your future with him? Daniel's story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Isaac, the Passover, whatever those stories you think of, they're, they're all indicators, they're all arrows that point to the reality that is Jesus himself. And if we've trusted in him, we can live life peacefully, joyfully, confidently. Because no matter what happens, whatever lions we're cast to, whatever difficulties we face, we've got a risen Savior and our hope is secure in him. We can live life confidently because of that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've got all kinds of illustrations that remind us of your faithfulness, of your provision for sin, of deliverance for us, ultimately in the Lord Jesus himself. And that, Lord, as he ate that last Passover meal, he himself was becoming that Passover lamb. And that when he died on the cross, Lord, the last lamb that needed to be offered was offered. And that as he died, as his blood poured out, Lord, our sins were atoned for. Lord, like, unlike Daniel, we were not without fault before you. We have all sinned like wayward sheep. We all went astray. And you really laid all of our iniquity on him. It was his death, Lord, that bought our pardon. And it is with just humble thankfulness that we thank you that at this cost, the loss of your son, the son of your love, Lord, you've purchased our pardon. That Jesus rose indicating we were now righteous in him, justified before you, that no barrier now could keep us from your presence. Lord, help us entrust ourselves again to your care today, whether it's to trust you as Savior from our sins, Lord, to trust you as the deliverer for the difficulties we face in life. Trust you as the one who guarantees our future with you. Lord, I thank you that all your promises will be righteously fulfilled in your church, in the Jewish nation, ultimately all fulfilled in your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, it is on him that we pin all our hopes. In his name we pray, amen.